0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know that we have been walking through 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 in a sermon series that we call Mission Own. We've seen in this series how God desires that we own the mission that he has called us to. And the Apostle Paul is our example of that. The Apostle Paul was given a mission by Christ to spread everywhere the knowledge of him. And so Paul had accepted, he had owned that mission. And in these verses of chapters 10 through 13, Paul is sharing his life story and defending his ministry, providing an example for us as we think of what it looks like for us to own the mission as well. Today we're going to be in part five of this series as we look at chapter 13 verses 1 through 10. But before we look at those verses together, I I want to just kind of set the table by relating to you an experience I had a few weeks ago. I was going to be officiating a wedding and it was at a venue that I had been to before but hadn't been to for quite a while. And so I I take off thinking I know where I'm going. Thankfully, as I was getting in my car, I do what we do in 2023. I pulled out my phone and I typed in the address. Then I plugged my phone in and I started to drive. As I'm driving, I'm going where I think I'm supposed to be going when my phone begins to freak out. It begins to, to shout at me. Stop, turn around, take a left, take another left. Um, and I didn't listen because I thought I knew where I was going. And, and then my, my watch starts vibrating. Stop, you're going the wrong way. And so eventually, I heed the warnings of these apparatus around me. And I turned around. And, and because of that, I actually was able to get where I was going on time which as a pastor for a wedding, that can be kind of important. Um, it's, it would be bad for the bride or groom to not show up, but it also would be bad for a pastor to leave the couple at the altar. And so thankfully I made it there because eventually I listened to the direction that was coming to me and I turned around and I ended up where I was supposed to be going. Now, why do I tell you that story today? Not just to share my lack of direction, but I think inside of that story, we see a great parallel for the Christian life. You see, in the Christian life, um, we think we know where we're going, don't we? I mean, especially if we've been a believer for a while, or we just kind of trust our good old boy or good old girl instincts, we think we know where we're supposed to go. And so we take off driving in that direction. But at times if we're honest, we drive off course. We begin going in our own direction. And that's when the Holy Spirit begins to vibrate in our lives, right? could vibrate in the sense of our conscience being seared. Turn around. Don't go there. The Holy Spirit using and prompting a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside us and to say, hey, you're headed in the wrong direction, or or maybe to illuminate a part of God's Word as we read it, or to put us in a position to hear a sermon that might convict us so that we might be warned that we are headed in the wrong direction. Friends, when we heed that advice, that direction that is coming to us from the Spirit of God, the Bible calls that repenting. It calls it, do it a U-turn. When we are headed in our own direction, we stop, we do a 180, and we begin to follow Christ again. This is an active part of what it looks like for us to follow Christ in our everyday lives. And the Apostle Paul highlights it in chapter 13. And in the first 10 verses of chapter 13, Paul is going to talk to us about the nature of repentance and discipline in the believer's life. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at these 10 verses. I want to read them for us. And then after I read them, I'm going to back up and make a couple of observations today that will help us understand a little more about the role of repentance and discipline in the Christian life. So if you've got a Bible, take it and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes and says this. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives in the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you... We will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Now, friends, in these 10 verses, I want us to see two things about repentance and discipline from the Lord today. So what are those things? The first thing I want us to see is I really want to ask the question, do we know Jesus the Judge? Do we know Jesus the Judge? We may know Jesus the Son of God, we may know Jesus the Savior, but do we also know Jesus the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the rightful Judge of the earth? Do we know Jesus in this way? Well, Paul's going to remind us of some of that as we look at verses 1 through 4. Now, in order for us to make sense of this, we we need to look at a Corinthian timeline that Paul had with them because he's going to mention a number of different things here, and it's helpful for us to orient ourselves again to Paul's connection to the church in Corinth. We were reminded that Paul planted the church in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. As a part of Paul's second missionary journey, he went to Corinth. He shared the gospel there. He led the first believers to Christ there and saw the church begin. And then for 18 months, he led it. Now, after Paul left Corinth, he wrote them a letter. He wrote them the letter of... First Corinthians, and this letter was to challenge them in some different ways, to encourage them in some different ways as he continued to pastor them from a distance. Now, after he writes them this letter of First Corinthians, apparently Paul made a second visit. We see this alluded to in chapter 13, verse 2 that we just read, where Paul makes a second visit, and when he made that second visit, apparently he was challenging them about some sin that was in their midst, some ways that they were wandering. Paul challenged them on that visit. And then after that visit, he waited to see how they would respond, but apparently they didn't respond very well. So Paul aborted a potential third trip, at least delayed it for a while, and chose instead to send another letter, a letter that was sternly worded, a letter that Titus would deliver. We saw this earlier this year as we looked at chapter 2 and chapter 7 that referenced this stern letter that Paul wrote to the church. And now we see that Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians in advance of an expected third visit to the city. And so Paul is pastoring them, connected to them, trying to lead and guide them from a distance. But what was his concern? Well, if you were with us last week, you you know what he was concerned about. Paul was concerned about two different streams of sin that were being tolerated inside of this church. One of the streams of sin was the sin of division, sins like quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. There were sins of division that were happening in the church in Corinth, and Paul challenged them on it. He he was calling them to repent, to change their ways before he arrived. But not only were there these sins of division, there also were sins of sensuality. Impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. There were these sins of both natures, of both sexual sin and sins of division that were happening in the city. And Paul is ministering to them from a distance, asking them to do a 180, to do a U-turn, and to begin to follow Christ in these areas once again in advance of his visit. This was his concern. But Paul tells them, when I come, if you have not repented, if you have not done a U-turn, if you are continuing to persist in sins of division and you are continuing to persist in sexual sin, Paul says, I will need to confront you when I arrive. Now, what does he talk about his confrontation? Well, he lets them know that the confrontation that he will have will be biblical. In verse 1, he talks about the confrontation would be based on two or three witnesses. It would be a biblical confrontation. It would not be just hearsay. It would not be he said, she said. It's going to be based on evidence. Paul says, when I show up, I will confront you in this way, just as Jesus instructed in Matthew 18, and just as is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 19, Paul says, so also, I will confront you on the evidence to challenge you to repent. Paul would go on and say, not just that his confrontation would be biblical, but also he says, I've been telling you guys again and again and again for an extended time to repent in these areas. Paul would say, he says, I warned you in letters. I warned you when I was present. I warned you when I was absent. And I will warn you when I arrive again to repent of these sins. Paul says, I have consistently provided this warning. And if they did not listen, they were going to find a different Paul. They were going to meet powerful Paul. Paul says, when he comes, he will not spare them. Now, what, what, what am I saying when I say this? Well, how had Paul's opponent characterized him? We, we've talked about this over the last little bit. Paul's opponents in Corinth had characterized him as being weak He might write stern letters, but when he shows up, he's not so vocal. They were saying that that he was weak in some way. And Paul says, you want to see me come in power? Keep these sins of division. Keep up these sexual sins. And when I arrive on my third visit, I'm going to deal with them in a severe way. You might imagine it like a parent who is downstairs when the kids are playing upstairs. And the parent says, don't make me Come up there, right? The Apostle Paul is saying, don't make me, Corinthians, show up and exhibit my apostolic power. Repent now before I arrive. And what Paul was really saying was, he says, it's not so much going to be me who is doing this confronting, but it will be Jesus in me who is doing this confrontation, We see this in a beautiful way illustrated in verses 3 and 4, where Paul here is talking about Jesus. He says, he is not weak. Who's the he? Jesus. Jesus is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Now, When we see these verses at first glance, they're a little hard for us to understand, aren't they? They're a little hard to understand because when we think of the cross, we don't think of weakness. What is the cross? The cross is the power of God. It's the the center of the gospel where Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty that our sins deserve so that we might be forgiven. Can we think of anything more powerful than that? But what is Paul saying here? What he is saying here is that the cross is a demonstration of the humility of Christ. The cross is a demonstration of the humility of Christ, who could have at any moment struck down those who were trying to nail him to the cross, but he willingly gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus came, as as it were, in weakness and in humility, laying his life down humbly for us. But what happened on the third day? After Jesus was crucified, what happened on the third day? Jesus rose again. And after a period of time demonstrating the reality of the resurrection, he ascended to heaven. And what will happen one day? Jesus will return to the earth in resurrection And when he comes the second time, friends, he will not come humble and riding on a donkey, but he will come on a horse as a conquering king. So what is it that Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, you have gotten a certain demeanor from me over the years, Corinthians, and that demeanor has been consisted with the crucified Christ, humble and gentle among you, asking you to be reconciled to him. But if you persist... In disobedience, you're going to see the other side of Christ. Jesus speaking through Paul would be demonstrating his authority over the earth and would be calling them to account and to judgment. Now, when we think about the kind of authority that the apostles dealt, I mean, Paul is saying, when I show up, I'm going to demonstrate some apostolic authority. Uh, What did that look like in the first century? Well, the apostles, again, were the, it was the original disciples plus Paul who were given some special ability, some special opportunity, a special calling to establish the church in the first century. We saw a couple of weeks ago that in Ephesians chapter 2, that era of the foundation of the church is, is an era of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone. In in the foundational age of the church, there were these apostles, and they wielded an amazing power in terms of discipline as the concrete was hardening around the church. What did their apostolic authority look like? Well, let's just remember a few of them. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 lie about how much they gave. They said they gave it all when in fact they only gave some. They wanted the applause of men and they were called on it. And what happened to them? They died. It's an example of apostolic authority as Peter was presiding over that meeting. What other opportunities do we see what other things do we see well the apostle Paul himself when writing to the Corinthians in first Corinthians chapter 5 talks about a man that was caught in sexual immorality and Paul ultimately disciplines him by saying I turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh now what did that mean I don't know but it doesn't sound very pleasant right So there is an apostolic authority that Paul had. There's an apostolic authority that Peter had. And Paul would also say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, there were those who were abusing the Lord's Supper. There were those who were using the opportunity to to take communion, to divide the church, not to unite it. And Paul said because of that, they had been disciplined, and some of them have already Died. There was a, something that was going on in terms of apostolic authority in these moments. And then we see with Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul references them in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul says they have been turned over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Again, we don't know exactly what that means, but we see some sense of apostolic authority being mentioned. So when Paul says, hey, when I show up, you don't want me to show up and exhibit my apostolic authority they had reason to be concerned. Paul was calling them to repent so that he wouldn't have to have any of these things happen inside of this church that he loved anew in this moment. Now, when we talk about this kind of judgment, we begin to want to raise our hand, don't we? Wait a minute, judgment? Really? Is there really such a thing as judgment inside of the church? And we want to ask that question for a number of reasons. One of the reasons why we want to ask it is, what about the woman caught in adultery? There was a woman who was caught in adultery. She's brought before Christ. And, you know, he, he receives her and protects her in that moment. Uh, we, we think about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7, and near the conclusion of that sermon, that we're to remove the log from our own eye before we deal with the speck in our brother's eye. And we think about places like um, uh, Romans chapter 8 in verse 1 where it it talks about how there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so where is the judgment in the midst of all of this? I mean, these seem like they, they run counter to one another. But friends, let's remember something. When the woman is brought before Christ in the midst of adultery, Jesus protects her from the self-righteous mob. But then what does Jesus say to her? He says to her, go and sin no more. Jesus had a concern for the direction of her life. He loved her enough to not allow her to continue to walk in that direction. He protected her in the moment, but he wanted her life to do a U-turn, to do a 180. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is there dealing with really the Pharisaic, self-righteous judgment that was happening of others, um, it is not to say that there is somehow no care that God has for the direction and behavior of our lives. As a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount is full of direction for how we might live our lives. And when we think of this idea of being no condemnation for those who are in Christ, let us remember that is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In other words, if we want the protection that Jesus offers, we need to be with him. We need to turn towards him and not away from him. And so when we think about this idea of judge Jesus, I I want us to to, to drill this home for just a moment and have us reflect on this in each of our lives. When we turn to Christ, we find forgiveness. Amen? Amen. This is the gospel. When we turn to Christ, we find forgiveness. Every single one of us in this room and every single one of us on stage. Yeah, that's me. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have. Our only hope is to turn to him. And when we turn to Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if you are here today and you are living your life, driving down the road and you are convicted of the nature of your life and you're driving away from him, God's answer for you is quite simple. Do a U turn, turn to Christ. And in that moment, you will find the forgiveness that only he can offer. But what happens if we don't turn to Christ? What happens if we blow right through the conviction. Well, if we turn away from Christ, friends, we will find that one of two things will happen to us. Either we will be turned over. If we turn away from Christ, we may be turned over by him. We see this in Romans chapter one, verses 24 and 26, where it, it, it talks there about people who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It says, God gave them over To their passions. In other words, God is saying, okay, you want to walk away from me? Then go live in that reality and see where it leads. God gives us over to our sin, and we are left with the natural consequences of that sin. Cheat on your wife and deal with the consequences of the brokenness in that relationship and the brokenness of relationship with your kids. That is turning over to those natural consequences. Embezzle from your workplace and deal with the consequences of the IRS or law enforcement or losing your job. Friends, these are, are God turning us over to the natural consequences of our behavior. And, and I'll take it one step further. If you do not know Christ, you've never trusted in him, that ultimately, eternally, there are consequences of separation from him and hell. If we are not in Christ and he turns us over to the consequences of our actions, then there are real problems that await. But a second thing that can happen is that we might be Disciplined that we might be disciplined. I love what Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6 says. It talks about how if we are in Christ, if we are his children, that like a loving father, he disciplines us. He disciplines those he loves. And his discipline might look like a lack of satisfaction in our behavior. His discipline might look like relationships with those following Christ around you, who are are calling you out and calling you back to the truth? Or it might be some other things, but it's actually the grace of God. Would you rather be turned over or would you rather be disciplined by a loving heavenly Father? Friends, these are our options. And I put them up there because I want to remind us of this. The one who is able to judge, that is Jesus, by the way. The one who is able to judge is willing to save. So when we turn and do that U-turn, repent of our sin and begin to follow him, then he is restoring, rebuilding, and establishing us forever. The one who is able to judge is willing to save. Again, I love what he says in verses 3 and 4. He says, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. To underline these truths, I would just say this, run to him in his weakness, run to Jesus at the cross before he comes in power. There will be a day when we will give an account for our lives. May we run to Christ in the cross before he returns that we might find forgiveness and hope and restoration. Friends, do you know Jesus, the judge? A second thing, though, that I want us to see. And that second thing is this, the heart of discipline. I talked earlier about the discipline that would come as a, as a father to a child and how it is love that motivates that and it is restoration that is the direction. We, we see Paul establish this even further when he talks in verses 5 through 10 about the heart of his discipline, the heart of his discipline. So where do we see? What do we see here? Well, first of all, Paul here challenges them to examine themselves or to test themselves. Now, this is a really interesting thing to say, um, especially because in this series we've been looking at from chapter 10 all the way through chapter 12, Paul is defending his own ministry. That's what we've been talking about. Paul was providing a defense for his own ministry. In other words, Paul was saying, I have been on the the microscope table. I have been under examination for three chapters, Paul would say. "But, But now I want to turn the conversation and I want you to, instead of examining me, I want you to examine you. I want you to test yourselves and see if Jesus Christ is in you. Is there evidence of Christ in you? This is something Paul would talk about in places like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul would also talk about this like a parent to little children when he says, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. There is a a hope and a desire, really an expectation that Christ would be transforming our lives and our character more into his image. Paul had this hope. And so Paul asked them, Hey, I want you to take a moment and just examine and test your lives to see if you are becoming more Christ like. I want you to see if Christ is in you. Who are you really following? Who is your true God, your true Lord? Well, might we do that? Well, quickly, I want to hit on three different things that we see in the Scripture that talk about some ways that we might test to see if the Spirit of God is indeed in us. The first test I want to mention is that of asking, is the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Holy Spirit in our hearts? Romans chapter 8, 9, you, however, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The scripture will tell us that from the moment that we have believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to reside within our lives. And so Paul says if we want to know if God is, if we're truly in Christ, we need to see if the Spirit is present in our lives. And we find out if the Spirit is present. Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5, if the fruits of the Spirit are being made evident in our lives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Friends, one of the, the ways that we test ourselves is we might say, Lord, is your Spirit and its fruit known by those who know me? A second test do you love other Christians? Paul would say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. One of the things that happens when we are in Christ is that we have an affection, a care for f- our fellow believers in Jesus. One of the tests we might ask ourselves is, is my heart moved for the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ? And a third we might say is, do we obey him? do we obey him? Jesus said himself in John fifteen ten, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So when we're testing to see if Christ is in us, we might ask, are we obeying him? Is there a love for other Christians in us that is motivating us to act and are the fruits of the spirit evident in our lives? May we ask the question, may we examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, is Christ in us. Well, after talking about examining himself and in the test, Paul here makes an, an admission. He says, I, I want you to know, as you think about this, Paul, Paul basically is expecting them to say, yes, Christ is in me. That was his expectation. And that they would realize as they did that, that Christ was also in Paul. That was his expectation. He was not having them go through this exercise with the thought that they would realize that they were lost. He was reminding them that they were found. He was reminding them that they were in Christ. Not that they would become Christians, but that they would act like one. That's what Paul was doing here. Now, After reminding them of this, Paul goes on to pray for them. He mentions in verse 7 and verse 9 that he was praying for them. These provide like a parentheses around them. What was he praying for them? What what was his heart? What was his objective? Well, he wanted them to get it right. He wanted them to do a U-turn. He wanted them to stop doing what was wrong and to start doing what was right. And If he did that, Paul knew that it would look like he had failed. Now, that's weird to say. But what Paul was basically saying was, I have said that when I show up, I'm going to show up and demonstrate my apostolic power. But if you repent before I get there, apostolic power Paul won't be showing up, right? I will fail in this demonstration of power. But Paul says, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. He says, because if you have repented... What would I have to discipline? What would I have to discipline? He says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. In other words, I'm only going to discipline those who are walking away from Christ, not those who are turning towards him. Paul was happy for him to be the weak one, that they might become strong in their faith. It was their restoration that he was seeking. And this word restoration, friends, is the word that is used elsewhere in Scripture for the mending of a fishing net. It is making something whole to make it useful once again. What was Paul saying? Paul was saying, Corinthians, stop wandering. You have driven past your turn. Do a U-turn and get back on course following Christ. Be restored to that mission. Be restored to that life. And that was his hope. And that was his expectation. He wanted to use his authority for building them up in their faith, not for tearing them down. And he writes them that they might turn before he arrives. So, what about us? How might we connect these verses and apply them? Just two quick things to mention. The first one I would say is this examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Take take some time today. Take some time this week and examine your life and, and see: is there an area where change of direction is needed? In your financial dealings, in your relational dealings, in sexual sin that you are, are tolerating, whatever it might be, is there a, a, a change of direction that is necessary? May, may you do so before. The discipline of the Lord comes. And second, know that Jesus wants to build you up. You realize that Jesus' desire for you is not just that you would get by or to get to heaven, but his desire is for his image to be formed in you. It's for your life to conform to his so that the world might experience his love through you. Christ's ultimate desire is not to tear you down, but his ultimate desire is to build you up to be the one that he has created you to be. Would you turn to him, trust him, and follow him? This is the heart of this one. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to study these words today. Lord, they're, they're, they're strong words, they're, they're hard words, but they are necessary words for us to hear that we might come to a conviction of our sin, that we might turn away from its practice, repent of it and follow you instead, that you might build us up into the people that you have created us to be, to live the life that we were created for. Lord Jesus, may, may we turn to you collectively today and live our lives following you. In Jesus' name, amen.